Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher. This is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what, he, what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Lord, help us today as we consider what you desire to feed us with this morning. Allow us, Lord, to be humble, to be teachable, to be willing, Lord, to be fashioned and shaped by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, as well as strengthened and encouraged by the, 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 the food that we are receiving from the Holy Spirit today. You call us to be your people. You call us to be your church. And Lord, we, we ask that we would do our part in, in listening carefully and embracing your truth willingly. And Lord, I just ask that you would use me as your messenger to, to, to be the mouthpiece, Lord, for what you desire to proclaim to your people in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are working through this, this great pastoral epistle. And as you see in the, the heading, the, the melodic line or the theme of this book is, is Paul's passionate plea to his protege, Timothy, to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so everything that we're looking at here kind of is, is hooking onto that line of thinking. And when we come to this passage, it says in, in verse eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. There's a word that is repeated in our text three times. Here in verse eight, and we're told, therefore do not be ashamed. In verse 12, Paul says, I am not ashamed. And then we find at the end of this passage, verse 16, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. Now what does it mean to not be ashamed? Now certainly as you read words like this, or if you've maybe gone to other passages where it talks about being ashamed, there's a tendency for us to think, oh no, I'm going to get hammered this morning. Pastor's just going to blast me with guilt 
from being ashamed. I'm not going to blast you with guilt, but I would ask that you'd be honestly reflecting in your heart what God says through Paul in his words to Timothy that ultimately are directed to us today. So what does it mean to be ashamed? Well, I would say, first of all, it is not simply embarrassment. Now you think about it, it's the, the typical scenario of the, the freshman college student who's going off to university and he's, he's going into that, that, that class that that professor is waiting for. And on the first day of that class, he says, all right, all of you Christians stand up. All right, and he'll point at them and say, you're simple-minded, unthinking people, and I'm gonna prove to you why Jesus Christ is no one to be worshiped or something along that line. There's a goal, there's a desire in a secular context to embarrass those who are followers of Christ. Now that may be true, but the idea of being ashamed here, this word embarrassment or being embarrassed really doesn't rise to the level of what's being talked about here. In fact, Paul isn't telling Timothy, don't be embarrassed about the gospel. Timothy has been his representative for years. Timothy has stood tall as a pastor in Ephesus for years. He's gone into Corinth with a letter from Paul and helped them sort through all these problems that they had. He's stood for Paul with the gospel. So he's a seasoned Christian leader. He's a battle-scarred warrior. He's a troubleshooter for Paul. Embarrassment wasn't something that Timothy was struggling with. The idea here of being ashamed is really what you understand when you take the A off of that word. It's the idea of shame. And the idea of shame is much more severe than simple embarrassment. It means being shamed or disgraced ultimately. So Paul is warning Timothy of the shame and disgrace that will be his if he continues to stand with the testimony of Christ and of Paul, his apostle. Now we must remind ourselves that the cross, or often what is called the gospel, those words are used interchangeably because the gospel took place at the cross. To the Jews, the cross was scandalous. To think that the promised Messiah would be put to death in such a shameful way is a scandal to any Jew. The Messiah was the king of Israel coming to rule. And so the concept of Messiah dying is foreign to a, a Jewish mind. To the Gentiles, the idea of the cross, that Jesus would be a substitutionary atonement for people's sins, was a foolish joke. In fact, though, the, the, the term cross was even not used in Greek, might want to say, upper crust society because it was such an obscene word. Death by crucifixion was considered the most humiliating, the most shameful and degrading torture deserved only for the worst criminals. So the cross became a symbol, a public symbol of suffering and shame. And so Paul is appealing to Timothy to share in that same humiliation. Paul is a prisoner in Rome, and let me say this. He's not a prisoner of the Romans. What does the text say? Paul, a prisoner 
of God. In other words, Paul knew that he was a prisoner in Rome because he was kept by the Father. But he is bound with chains, like a common criminal, chapter 2, verse 9 tells us. And we're reminded of that verse in Hebrews 12, 2, that says about Jesus this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured what? The cross, despising the what? The shame that comes with the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So to be ashamed is to be unwilling to take on the shame that comes with being a follower of Christ. So Paul reveals to Timothy and us three antidotes to gospel shame, three ways that we can be faithful to not be ashamed, or three ways that we can embrace the shame that we are to have because we're God's children. And the first antidote, the first way we can do this, we'll put under the heading of trusting the maker of the gospel. Now the structure of this passage really folds into three sections. Verses eight through 12 are one section. Verses 13, um, and I believe it's 14, um, are the second section. And then we have a third section, verses 15 and 16. That last section really is an example that Paul is using to talk about what shame looks like and not being ashamed looks like. But we have these three sections. The first section focuses now on what I'm calling trusting the maker of the gospel. Now, in Koine Greek, which is the, the language that the Bible is written in, particularly the New Testament is written in, um, there, there's a, a different way in which things are communicated than maybe in our English language. Um, English teachers do not like the Apostle Paul because what we have here is we have one long sentence that begins at verse 8 and ends at verse 12, all right? If you wrote this sentence on your English paper, you would get a fat F because it would be a run-on sentence, but that was right. That was the appropriate way for Paul to write, and so we have this one sentence, this one long sentence with two bookends. Verse eight, we see shame and suffering because of the power of God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the suffering about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So we have this, this appeal to shame and suffering. Then look at verse 12, and this is Paul reflecting now on what his responsibility is now as a preacher and a teacher. He says, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So we have this second one, not suffering and shame, but shame and suffering. He kind of brings it around back to him. So here's these, these bookmarks, and we'll get to the, 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 the details of them, but understand that the, the bookmarks are there to help point to something. But we must remind ourselves that this call to suffering, this call to shame, is what Jesus promised from the beginning. 
Listen to Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's falsely, but they still do it. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's a word of encouragement. They're not really after you, they're after Jesus. But remember this also, you were in a very long line of faithful servants who endured suffering for God and the gospel. And then also in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this should not come as any shock value to any faithful reader of the Bible. That to follow Christ means embracing suffering and shame for following Christ, for being identified with Christ, or others who are being identified with Christ. So we have this one sentence with two bookends. Now let's look at the gospel between those two bookends. And I just, I love this section of scripture, friends, and I love Paul's writing because he'll be dealing with a particular topic and then he'll pause and he'll talk about the gospel. And here now in these three verses where Paul lays out for Timothy the power of God's saving grace through the mediator Jesus Christ, who has appointed Paul to be a minister of the gospel. We just see this gospel unfolded and we we see that it, it begins with God. And Paul is wanting us to see that the gospel, our salvation, goes all the way back to God. And since he is the author of our salvation, then he is also the overseer of our sanctification in which there will be times of suffering and shame. So in this passage, there's a direct flow from God to Jesus to Paul, which then is applied to us. It's a beautiful picture of God's glorious gospel, and it unfolds in three ways. We're to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It is the power of God that drives the gospel. The first way, then, is what I'm calling the power of God's will, the power of God's will, our salvation. It says in verse eight, right at the end there, it says God, right, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So get this, God, before the ages began and because of his own purpose and grace, called us and saved us in Christ Jesus. Let me just say that again and let it settle in. God, before the ages began and because of his own purpose and grace, called us and saved us in Christ Jesus. Notice that our salvation took place in the heart of God before the ages began. Now friends, that's staggering 
Your salvation didn't begin when you said yes. Your salvation began in the heart of God before the ages began. I'm not making that up. I'm just reading what Scripture says. It reminds us of Ephesians, Ephesians 1.4, where it says, He, that would be God, chose us in him, talking about Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now, friends, this is a truth, this is a principle, this is a reality of the gospel that should encourage us that our salvation is not based on some kind of decision we made. Our salvation is based on what took place in the heart of God before the ages began, before the world was created. And he chose us and he saved us. Now certainly, in that whole package, we are hearing the gospel, we're responding to the gospel. But this beautiful legacy of the gospel in our lives is all flowing out of the heart of God. And think about this, guys. If you're going to endure suffering for the gospel, it is helpful to know that your salvation began not because of something you did, but way before the ages began in the heart of God, he began it. He thought it, and he brought it into being. And if that's true, then he is still present with you now. The power of God's will. Secondly, the power of God's work. Here we have the the mediation of Christ. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested or made known through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the gospel was manifested or made known. What was in the heart of God was made known when Jesus Christ appeared. In the beginning, John's gospel says, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. See, here is God in the beginning, and then Jesus, the Son, appears, and the gospel is on display through Jesus Christ in that moment while he's here on this earth in the mediator of the Son, Jesus Christ. So the gospel was manifested through Christ. The gospel was accomplished through Christ's death on the cross. That is what Jesus ultimately came to do, to be the sacrifice once for all. And through that sacrifice, we call it the work of Christ, was accomplished. This is what he, this is what he did. This is what Paul is saying right now. He abolished death. If you're a child of God, you will die physically, but you will not die spiritually. The death that separates us from God has been removed because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Secondly, we have the confidence that he brought both life and immortality. That not only do we have life to come, we have life now. Now certainly this life now is still entangled with the flesh and the struggles that we're experiencing, 
but we have the promise of life everlasting, but abundant life includes now as well as the future, but this life is only because of what Christ Jesus did for us on the cross. So it began with God. It's mediated through Christ and his work. Friends, this is the gospel, and it's a gospel to, pro to be proclaimed, that God in his Wisdom and grace sent his son to a cross to pay for people's sin and to reconcile them back to himself. And as we continue on here, we see the power of God's witness, the power of God's witness. And this is Paul's appointment, verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Now this is, this is in the passive voice. Paul didn't say, and that's, that's why I chose to be a pastor and an apostle and a teacher. No, what happened to Paul? He's out there persecuting Christians, right? And he's on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, God reaches down and knocks him off the horse. This is the Rod Phillips version, okay? All right? He breathes new life into him and calls him to a service of apostleship and leading the church. Paul didn't sit around and say, hmm, should I be a doctor, should I be an accountant, or should I be an apostle? I think I'll be an apostle. No, no, no. This happened to him. He says, for this, I was appointed. That's in the passive voice. It means that happened to him. It's what God did and said, this is what you're going to do for me. And so as a preacher, he's a herald who proclaims the greatest news ever told. As an apostle, he is sent by God with God-sent authority to represent God and to speak for God. So when an apostle would speak, the church would listen because he's speaking with authority, representing God. And as a teacher, he was one who outlined the great doctrines of the faith. Paul is who he is at this point in time, would say today, as he's writing this letter, because of the maker of the gospel, God himself. Now see, this is where this is going. Paul's laying all this gospel out because he's trying to get to a point. Look at verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do. He says, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced it's not a light word, is it? That he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So he says, this is why I suffer. I am not ashamed because I trust the person of God. I trust the power of God. I trust the providence of God, which is the purpose of God and the power of God working together to, to work out the plan of God. And Paul says, I know, I know, I know the God that I believe in, and I am convinced that he is able, just pause, God is able. He is able to do in your life what he set out to do in your life. And it reminds us, of course, it's an echo of what Paul said in Philippians 1.6 where he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. And friends, there, there are truths like that that are given to the church that also are then translated over to us that what, what God starts in us with his gospel before the ages began, he will bring to completion on that day when we all stand before Christ. So don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, in other words, the gospel, God, Christ, and the gospel message, and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share, join in suffering by trusting the maker, or we could say the God of the gospel. It's a hard word, isn't it? Don't be ashamed, but, but embrace shame. <laughs> embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now listen, friends. Can the God who saved you also sustain you? What's the answer? Of course it's yes. Can the God who called you also carry you through this life? Even with all the craziness that's happening in this world, can he do it? Will he do it? Will the God who, by his purpose and grace, placed you in Christ before the ages began be strong enough to finish his plan in you until that day? And of course the answer is yes, yes, yes! And that's what Paul is stressing to Timothy. Don't be ashamed. But take on that shame. Take on that suffering. God has called you to this. The historian Eusebius records the martyrdom of the aged Polycarp, one of the faithful church fathers. And Polycarp had been arrested by the Roman authorities and brought to the arena for execution in front of a cheering crowd. And the proconsul pressed him hard and said, Swear, and I will release you. Revile Christ. And Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me wrong. And how can I blaspheme my king that has saved me? Now, friends, there, there, there are times in our lives where we're going to be put on display, and we're going to have to verbalize an affirmation that we are a follower of Christ, but not just, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm a follower of Christ, and I believe the gospel, and I know this person that I believe, this God that I believe, and I am certain that no matter what happens today, he will carry me through. He will be faithful to me, even if it means my death. Because he's worthy of that praise. He is worthy of that life of adoration and praise and service that recognizes that, that shame and suffering go hand in hand if we're truly going to be followers of Christ. Are we trusting in the maker of the gospel. Do you trust God? Secondly, the second way that we can not be ashamed, the second antidote would be guarding the message of the gospel. 
Look at verse 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So I want to break it down into two questions. Question number one, what are we to do? Well, the first thing we're told to do is to follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. So the theme of sound words is throughout Paul's writings, especially in the pastoral epistles, because he's pouring himself out to those who are the next generation, who are going to carry on the ministry. Now, this idea of the word pattern is a, is a word that, that is thinking about boundaries or an outline sketch. It speaks of what we would call a blueprint of a building. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy that his teaching, which Timothy had heard and reinforced in ministry, laid out theological parameters or a blueprint for the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Now I want you to think about it this way. Think about just the the whole of the Bible. This is really in a nutshell. How we view the Bible as a whole. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of a Messiah. He is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. Here he is. Look at him. Look at what he's saying. Look at what he's doing. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. I mean, the book of Acts is a lot of story, but in the midst of the story are a bunch of sermons preached about Christ and about the Gospel. In the letters, Jesus is explained. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. So he's predicted, he's revealed, he's preached, he's explained, and he's expected. And I want to home in on that fourth one. In the letters, Jesus is explained. You see, this is what what Paul is doing in his letters, along with Peter and James and John and Jude. They're, They're writing these letters to frame for us our theological understanding of the gospel, the implications of the gospel. In fact, um, this is what Paul does oftentimes in his letters, right? Think of the book of Romans, 11 chapters of theology. This is what the gospel is, and it's just boom, 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 boom. And by the way, if you sit down and read the book of Romans in one sitting, it is wonderful, because you, you catch the, the, all the questions he's asking and the answers he's giving, but he gets to the end of chapter 11, And then it turns the quarter at chapter 12. And he says, now, I beseech you, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. And he goes now into the second half of the book, which is application of the doctrine. And the book of Ephesians, which we've gone through, First three chapters, doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Chapter four, application of the doctrine, application of the doctrine. The same thing happens in the book of Colossians. And so what Paul is saying here is this. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. The words that you've heard from me lay out the parameters, the blueprint of how the gospel is to be lived out in the church, in God's people. So Paul is telling us that one of the things that is critical to our suffering and shame 
is to grow in our theological understanding of the gospel and how it fleshes out in our lives. Secondly, we are to guard the deposit entrusted to you. It's a good deposit. It's the gospel that had been entrusted to Paul. It's a good, beautiful, precious, and and valuable deposit. In the same gospel, or say it is the same gospel that Paul tells Timothy a little later on in this letter, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this gospel is to be guarded, but it's also to then be entrusted. Now to guard means to protect and to keep. And God says that he will guard what has been entrusted to Paul. That was in verse 12. Now Paul says to Timothy that he must guard that same gospel. So God God promises that he's going to guard what he's entrusted to Paul, but now Paul is saying to Timothy, you have a responsibility to guard it. And this is, this is the practical application, right? And this is, this is saying, listen, God promises something. He doesn't remove our responsibility to also do the same thing. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm going to raise your kids up and they're going to end up being my children. So just sit back and let, let it happen. No. He says, train up your children. Invest in your children. Nurture your children. You have a responsibility. And Paul says, Timothy, this is what you need to do. You need to guard that good deposit. So this all has to do with the message or the content of the gospel. Or even you might want to say the words that Paul has been teaching, so the sound doctrine. Part of our embracing of suffering and shame is to be diligent to both protect the gospel as well as maintain the ongoing teaching of the theology of the gospel. So those are the two things that we are to do. Now the question is, how are we to do it? And friends, this is really important. It's, it's one thing to say, I know the gospel, I love the gospel, I love the word of God, I know the word of God, but how you handle that in the context of life can undermine the message that you know dearly. And notice what he says. We're to guard this gospel and to follow the pattern of sound words, but we're told now how. Notice number one in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. These two words, faith and love. To actually believe this gospel and all the implications of the gospel, but also to to, to follow this pattern in love. In other words, as someone teaches the word of God, they're not teaching it harshly. They're teaching it with an attitude of faith, belief, and love. Love for God, love for the people that are hearing the truth. Now this is a word to Timothy, but this is a word ultimately to me as a pastor that as I preach, as I teach, the the attitude of my heart, number one, is that I should believe what it is that I am saying that is true in the word of God and to communicate it in love. And and it's, it's, it's it's always a battle when you believe something so strongly and you feel so strongly, especially if it's a cultural thing, that that even in the context of preaching or teaching, you can get angry and move from love into a place of anger. We've gotta be careful there. Are we gonna raise our kids in anger or are we gonna raise them in love? So we're gonna follow the pattern of sound teaching in in a way that is loving, 
that considers that? Or are we gonna abandon that? But then we, we find this, this strength. There's two attitudes, but now we find this strength. It says, by the Holy Spirit's power. Your ability to guard that good deposit is not by your own strength. It's by the Holy Spirit's power. It's his strength. Now remember, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us is not the spirit of fear. That's verse seven. But of power, of love, of self-control. So Paul is speaking to to this issue of of guarding this good deposit, this message of the gospel with toughness and tenderness. You guard it. You protect it. You stand for it. But you're loving. And you're allowing the Holy Spirit to be the strength by which you're doing it. So to guard the gospel isn't saying hide it and protect it away from people where they can't get to it. It's saying use it, teach it, live it, pass it on, undiluted to the next generation in such a way that they will do the same. We don't want the word of God to be rare in our generation. We wanna prepare the next generation to carry on the same Gospel, And so we must be robust in our preaching, in our teaching, in our training, in our growing of our children. So the next generation can look at the word of God and say, this is the word of God. And the gospel that is in here is a robust gospel that tells us that God in his heart chose us before the world began and saved us. Rather than it being a diminished gospel that says, just love Jesus which can mean all sorts of different things depending on what your view of Jesus is. So we must trust the maker of the gospel, we must guard the message of the gospel, but now we need to be loyal to the messengers of the gospel. Notice verse eight, Paul says to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of, about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And we've just looked at the testimony about our Lord, just talking about the gospel and then the actual word of God. But now Paul addresses the nor of me, his prisoner part of it. Paul was in jail, remember. He had been put on trial and was awaiting his anticipated death verdict. We know that because of chapter two. We know that because of chapter four of this same book. And this is what Paul then says in chapter four, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I think we would probably say, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Will you please go out and sick them? That's not Paul's heart. But Paul, in the years of ministry, had established a lot of friendships and was assisted by many co-laborers. He had built this network up of of people that he loved, people that he served alongside of. So he was a man who was a lover of people. There was, if you remember, John Mark, who had been helpful to Paul. There was Silas, 
who had accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. There was Onesimus, the fugitive slave who was converted in Rome, who was special to Paul. There's Priscilla and Aquila who risked their lives to help Paul. There's Luke and there's Titus and there's Timothy, just to mention a few. And, and one, of the, one of the awesome things to do is just go through Paul's letters and read the last few paragraphs in each of those letters and just look at all the different people that he sends greetings to. This guy loved people and people loved him. And so it's understandable why Paul now is in such pain. Just read that chapter four, verse 16 again. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. I mean, here's Paul who had, who had gone through all sorts of difficulty and trials and trouble to proclaim the gospel and to bring the gospel to various areas. And now, while he's on trial, while he's been arrested, no one is there to stand by him, but all deserted him. And so we need to think about this idea of the pain of desertion. Now, by no means am I wanting to move over into some psychological pain. There's a, there's a real pain when people who are close to you, who are co-laborers that you expect to be present with you, choose not to be. Verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. First of all, there's, there's all Asia. Is, is, is this just Paul being in so much pain that he's just exaggerating in his pain? No, I think it's hyperbole. But I think he's saying, listen, there's no one in Asia. I'm in Asia, and there's no one here who's coming along beside me. Uh, the churches that I, I went to, that I ministered to, the people that were saved under my care and ministry, they're not here. They're gone. So it's not supposed to be taken literally, but it's, it's supposed to, to communicate that he is alone in his time of need. The people that he raised up, those who are disciples of Christ, those who are, uh, have been counseled by him in the churches where he was present, as well as through the letters that he sent, in his time of need, have deserted him. And then he homes in on two particular people. This is the only time they're mentioned. We don't know anything about them. But it's clear that Paul knows who they are, and it's clear that Timothy knows who they are. And so very likely we can come, I think, to a, a logical conclusion that these were two co-laborers of Paul that Paul expected by virtue of their relationship would be present with him, would not abandon him. Again, read that. It says, you are aware that all who in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phagellus and homogenes. I mean, as if, as if this is shock value. Even, even these two people have turned against me, have, have turned away from me, I should say. Now, you have to be in a real relationship with people for them to hurt you. You don't get hurt by people you don't know not showing up and standing by you. You get hurt because those people that you expect should be there 
would be there are not. And as soon as Paul is arrested, it seems like they were gone. And he is now alone, stuck in jail, facing death, concerned for the gospel to continue. And Paul is heartbroken and lonely in his appeal now to Timothy to not be like Phagellus or Hermogenes. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. If we are Christians who are faithful to the gospel message, then we also need to be loyal to one another. Especially when that loyalty is because of our identification with Christ. Now we may disagree on some secondary difference in Christian life. For example, you know, is it early earth, or is it young earth, or is it old earth? You know, is it ah-mill, post-mill, what-mill? Um, you know, those are important. And I wanna say that we need to believe and believe what we believe. But what we rally together around is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and nature of who Christ is, the Godhead. And when the church cannot be loyal to one another, when gospel issues are at stake, then we're, we're in difficulty. And so we need to make sure that that if we have a brother or sister in Christ who is facing gospel um, conflict, and they're part of our friendship, they're part of our network, that we are quick to say, I'm standing with you. I'm loyal to you because we have the same God. We might disagree on the way he's gonna return. We might disagree on the way it all began, but we certainly agree on the redemption plan of God that we all embrace, that we are the recipients of. And friends, there is this pain of desertion. There's also what I'm calling this, I wanna put a different word there, this refreshment of loyalty. There are those who desert their friends in their time of need, but Paul now turns his attention to one man who is an example of faithfulness and loyalty. See, when Paul is beginning with, do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, nor of me, his prisoner, he's now kind of waiting for his punchline with the example of this man, Onesiphorus. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he, specifically, often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and foundly. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Here's faithful Onesiphorus. First of all, an eagerness we find in him to search for Paul. He's coming on a journey. He comes to Rome. And he has decided to, to, to be bold in his movement toward Paul in this time of gospel crisis. 
Not only does he come to Rome, but it says he searched earnestly and found me. Now, we have to understand some of the culture of Rome. Where would Paul be? Well, Paul's in jail. He's in a hole in the ground. But in Rome, when you go to find out where people are, um, it's like this big bureaucracy. Now, I know some of my Russian friends who are here can probably say this if there are people that grew up in Russia. I've talked to some of them. But in order to get something done, something simple, you know, we, we go, woe is me, because I have to go to the DMV, right? You have no idea what bureaucracy is. You've got to go to this building and to this particular office, and they'll say, well, no, you can't get that done here. You have to go across town. You have to go to this particular building, to this office, and you'll get there and say, well, no, this is not the office that does that. You have to go to this other place to go to this office, and then you'll wait there for like two hours to get into that office, and they'll say, well, now you've done this. You have to go over here to this office, and they'll send you all around to do this kind of stuff, and there's a, there's a persistence that Onesiphorus had to go through to get to Paul because in that time, Rome was known to be a place of huge bureaucracy. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. That's what he's saying. He says, he searched earnestly and found me. Now, if you're ashamed of a brother or sister in Christ who is in jail, you don't pursue them in the face of such opposition. You can imagine him going into Rome. Hey, I'm looking for Paul. Paul who? Paul the apostle. The apostle of what? Of Jesus Christ. Oh, you mean that guy that was crucified as a criminal years back? Yeah, him. Oh, you mean the guy who's, who's causing the stirring of people who are followers of this Christ? Yeah, that same guy. Oh, you mean the guy who was on trial last week and is awaiting his, his death? Yeah, that's the guy. Oh, you mean you're one of the followers too? Yeah, where is he? Well, you're sticking your neck out. You're putting your life on the line. But that didn't stop him. He was not ashamed of Paul's chains. There's an eagerness, secondly, to stand with Paul. An eagerness to stand with Paul. He says, I'm not ashamed. He's not ashamed of my chains. No, he was willing to stand with Paul. Remember, this was all taking place during the time when Christians were being gathered up and persecuted in Rome, rounded up by the, the emperor for sport. So to go into Rome and be identified with Paul as a fellow Christian was to not be ashamed or was to be willing to take on shame, to be willing to embrace danger, to be daring. But ultimately, it was delightful for Paul. And then there's an eagerness to serve Paul, it seems like when he got there, it says he often refreshed me. So when Onesiphorus came to stand with Paul, he refreshed him, he was a source of encouragement. He brought strength and life to Paul during those difficult hours in the pit. And it seems like when Paul finishes out this, he says, listen, he has been faithful to me here in Rome, but you know what I'm talking about because he does the same thing in Ephesus. This is the character of this guy. You know his service. You know the kind of person he is. Now hear this. As the leaders of the church go, 
so goes the church. We're talking here about loyalty to the messengers of the gospel. As the leaders of the church go, so goes the church. If the leaders are struggling, discouraged, feeling abandoned in their strength and ability to continue to uh, the important ministry of preaching the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will ultimately hurt the church because they will no longer be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. If they're discouraged and, and they're, they're alone, they may desire to be faithful, but, but there's only so much that one person can handle, and there is a need for those who are not necessarily in the ministry of, of being the messengers of the word of God to, to, to kind of undergird them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to say, keep preaching the word. Keep taking us in the direction of the gospel. Keep showing us the glories of Calvary. We need it. We want it. And it's hard. There's a lot of opposition. But we're here to support you. We're here to help you. We're here to encourage you. And I say all this not just because I'm your pastor teacher, but because I stand in a long line of men who are doing all they can to stand for the gospel. And it really is not about me. In other words, look at how great I am because I'm standing up for the gospel. No, it's about Christ and his church that he has entrusted us to shepherd. Something greater than me going on. And it's the ministry of the gospel. It's the ministry of the word. It's the, the, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So lose the message of the gospel, lose the strength and the will to preach, and the church, friends, suffers. Now take it down a little bit further and say, in the context of your home, if you're not willing to say, this is the gospel, this is the truth of God's word, if you're, you're starting to, to, to move back on that, and maybe discouraged because you have friends and family that constantly hammer you down because you're simply saying, this is what God's word says. We need to be encouraging one another, supporting, strengthening one another, so that as we have the message of the gospel, we're loving, we're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we're refreshed, we're encouraged, we don't feel all alone. You know, it's a daunting task. No one said that ministering the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, being an evangelist, standing for the truth in this kind of context would be easy. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, endure suffering. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Now, in the last few minutes that we have here, I want to do what I'm calling a spiritual health check. I kind of got this idea from a man by the name of Dick Lucas. Just, I want us to think about this. Where do we stand on this? Let's first of all talk about retreating and then we'll talk about refreshing. And retreating simply means I'm, I'm starting to move away from standing firm with the gospel and the word of God. And there's a slow kind of step away. So here, here's some questions, and we're just gonna look at some scripture, and we're gonna ask some questions about it. 
So turn to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. You all know it, I'm sure, but see it. Romans 1, 16. And here's the first question. Let's read the passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the question we want to begin with here is this. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Now let's flesh it out a little bit more based on what the passage says. Do you believe that Jewish people still need the gospel? Do you believe that? Are you offended that there are groups like Jews for Jesus whose desire is to take the gospel to those who are Jews, who are convinced that Jews who are embracing their Judaism are standing in rebellion against God by virtue of their unbelief, that they have rejected the Messiah that is the logical and natural continuation of the Old Testament because he didn't fit into their thinking of what Messiah should be. See, the Jews cannot comprehend a dead Messiah. So they reject Christianity. And yet, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, to the Jews. Have we stopped believing that the Jews need the gospel? Let me ask you this kind of a side question. Has your politics affected your belief that the Jews need the gospel? Are you more excited about the nation of Israel than you are excited about the gospel getting to Israel? And then do you believe that the Gentiles, the nations of the world, still need the good news of the gospel today. You say, well, no, the world's been reached. See, this has implications to our passion for missions. Some might believe who are ashamed of even the, the missionary emphasis that missionaries are upsetting the happiness of these native people. You're going into people and this is their natural habitat. Right? They're, they're, they're not animals. They're people whom Jesus Christ died on the cross for. They are the, I want to say, the end of the stream of a reason why you need a preacher to go to a place where people haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and by virtue of that preaching, God who before the ages began had already chosen, now through the preaching, saves. That's missions. But oh, we don't want to upset their natural habitat. That would be horrible. See, that's, that's, that's a mentality that's out there. So are we ashamed then of those missionaries? Are we ashamed because missionaries are denying the validity of those pagan religions? People can go back and say, you know, yeah, the big missionary movement, you know, so, so proud about that, but they went onto these islands of these places and they totally ripped apart the pagan practices and that's so awful. 
They impose their Christianity on them. Now, let me pause here and say this. Uh, there, there probably were some situations where there was a harshness in how they went with the gospel. As the Catholic Church, in particular, went to South America, they went with a sword in hand, saying, believe the gospel. Now, it wasn't the sword of the Bible, it was a sword you pull out that's very, very sharp. And if you don't believe, well, you will believe really quickly. Now, we're not talking about that kind of stuff because that was a distorted gospel and it was a political move as opposed to those who truly wanted to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to different places. So missionaries are accused of religious colonialism and I think there's an element of truth to that. We went to this place and we, we planted our American flag. Oh, shame on us if that's our attitude. Missions should be coming alongside the nationals and helping them to be the church that God has called them to be. And at the right time, retreat and let them continue on and be a resource to them. Now friends, the implication is this, are we ashamed of the gospel and how does it affect our idea of what people still need? Does the world still need the gospel? What's the answer? Yes, of course. Then, let's turn to Mark chapter eight and verse 38. Mark chapter eight and verse 38. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when it comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Is there anything about Jesus that you're ashamed of? Well, I love, I love the fact that Jesus was so compassionate. I love the fact that Jesus healed people of their sicknesses. But I'm not too thrilled about those parts where Jesus speaks and he condemns people. I'm not thrilled about the fact that he is the one ultimately that is initiating the pouring out of wrath on those who are unbelievers. You see, are there, are there parts of who Jesus is, and let's, let's kind of stretch this out, are there parts of the Godhead that you are offended by? If you're ashamed of me and my words, I'm gonna be ashamed of you. So to the words that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do they cause you to shrink back? Or do you embrace them as the beautiful truth that they are? Well, Jesus, is, he's, he's kind, he's generous, he's, he's compassionate, he's loving, and oh, but he's so exclusive. That's who he is, and are we ashamed of that? Or are we willing to take on shame because that is true? <laughs> and then 2 Timothy 1.8, which we've looked at already. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Now, 
Here's the third one. Are you ashamed of God's messengers? And are you ashamed of God's message? Now, specifically Paul. Feminists do not like Paul. And one of the arguments they use is, well, we like Jesus, but we don't like Paul. Those who are embracing the, you know, the gay and lesbian lifestyle, they like Jesus, but they don't like Paul. And so they make a distinction between the words of Christ and the words of Paul, and they splice up the Bible. And, and in fact, those who want to pursue their own sin will oppose God's word. They'll carve it up however they want. Are we ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and of his prisoner, of his messengers? Friends, are, are we ashamed of that? See, that's the, that's the retreating thing. And I think there's always a tension because we fear. We, we don't like to not be liked. Anyone here like to not be liked? No, I think it's natural for us. But we've got to fight this temptation to kind of just retreat a little bit and retreat a little bit because before you know it, you've retreated a long way. And we need to come back to say, no, I'm, gonna, I'm standing. I'm taking on shame and I'm taking on suffering for the sake of the gospel. And then we can move now to what, the refreshing side. And this is, this is an encouragement to you. This is a challenge to you. The idea of being refreshed means to cause something to cease, to lie down and rest, to rejuvenate. And let's look at just a couple of passages. In, in uh, the book of Philemon, this, this word is found. It's not found too much through the, through the scriptures, but it's found in Philemon twice. And remember, Paul is writing this letter to Philemon and appealing to him to take this, this slave who has been converted and to forgive him. In verse seven he says, for I have derived much joy and comfort for, from your love, speaking to Philemon. My brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And here's the, here's the first thing, all right? And that's this. The hearts of the saints can be refreshed by individuals. You as an individual, can be a source of health and rejuvenation and encouragement to those who are standing in the face of suffering and shame. We can be that person. You do that by coming alongside, by affirming your allegiance, promising to pray, asking, how can I help? coming alongside with maybe help that isn't even being asked for because you're anticipating their needs. And then look at verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Again, from an individual, refreshment. Refresh my heart. This is not just physical, it's also spiritual. It's, it's the body of Christ, fellowshipping together. So when we gather in home groups, or in small groups, Maybe it's one-on-one, -on -one, and we're praying for one another, and we're talking about our struggles, and we're encouraging one another, we're opening up the word together, we are feeding one another, we're refreshing one another's souls through the word of God. And then turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
2 Corinthians 7. In verse 13, Paul again says, therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Now, Corinth wasn't in the south. That was a joke, guys, come on, all right? Refreshed by you all, right? Y'all, right? The point here is this. It was the church that was a means of refreshment. Now, friends, if, if, if I could summarize what, what I would envision Gateway to be, and, and based on what God's word is saying here on this topic, what we should be, is that Gateway Bible Church is a church that is known for being a place of refreshment. And by that, I do not mean donuts, bagels, and coffee. I mean that we have a heart to care for one another, not with the the niceties and the psychology of life, but with the robust truth of the gospel being preached and taught and nurtured and fed. It's the spiritual side and the practical side, living that out by supporting one another physically with trials and difficulties. And and we do a lot of that. And I'm saying, I, I see it. This is a place of refreshment. Someone gets sick, someone's in the hospital, someone has a baby. You guys are quick to say, what can I do? I can provide a meal, come alongside and help. This is all part of the refreshment ministry that we have as a church. But then we can also say that there's a need then for for us to be people of refreshment. This is an individual thing. It's It's a culture of a church, but it is an individual passion. And we flesh it out in the context of living, both in the church as well as as we interact with others around us. See, friends, the antidotes to shame are to trust in the maker of the gospel. Have you know, have you, well, you have to know him and you have to be convinced that he is faithful and at work in your life. Secondly, it means to guard the message of the gospel because you realize that the teaching and preserving of God's word are critical for the furthering of the church in the next generation. And it means to be loyal to the messengers of God. True friends and co-laborers stick together when the world turns against them. May we be that church. Lord, help us. Help us to not be ashamed. But Lord, help us to embrace the shame that comes and the suffering that comes because we identify ourselves with you. Well, that's what you meant when you said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and take up your cross. It's it's a call, Lord, for us to take on the shame that, that you received. And so, Lord, this morning we have... We have hard work to do to ask ourselves the hard questions. Are we, are we doing that? Are we taking on shame? Are we embracing the suffering that comes 
by virtue of being who we are because of what happened in your heart before the ages even began, that you chose us and that you saved us. And Lord, that means that you've called us now to live our lives for your glory. Embracing our identity in your son Jesus Christ. May we be faithful to carry this out, to live this out for your glory, but Lord, also for the next generation that's coming behind us who will carry on this legacy. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.